Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi guys, welcome to another episode here. I am without Alex again, just me for this time. So I want to give you guys some special kind of episode and I'm here with my notes on John 14, 12 through 14. These verses have been used awfully horrific way in the charismatic movement since the past 100 years that I, I, I want to give it some some emphasis so you guys can really know what it's about and that it does not mean what many people claim that it means and are throwing dirt on the name of Christ by doing so, as I will show you in the coming episode. I want to point you guys again to the giveaway by Undying Light, our Instagram page. Great book, Introduction to the... to a, I forgot the title already, I'm sorry. It's Introduction... Uh, I'm sorry, it's Biblical Theological Introduction to the New Testament, edited by Michael Kruger, published by Crossway. Excellent book, so make sure you go into that giveaway and make a run for it for that book. It's going to be given away for Christmas, I believe. Alex is taking care of that. I really appreciate him for that. Uh, So let's go. First, we got to give some main points and context for this. I'm going to read the passage shortly, but first... Well, I already said that these words have been used horribly. They have been used of Christ, um, Christ's words, of course, and that's Christ speaking in, in John 14. They have been used as a proof text within the Pentecostal and Charismatic movement, as they commonly do. And again, I don't have anything, any uh, bad emotions, so as to say, or, or bad desires toward these people. I don't mean any harm to them. I believe many of them are actual brothers in the faith. So I I love the mass brothers and I worry about them. I came out of that movement. That's why I'm so. I I push it quite a lot because I I examined its its um, theology and it just doesn't line up with um, scripture. So I, that's why I put an emphasis on on the charismatic movement. So the the proponents of that movement have gone around the world making wild claims of having raised the dead healed paraplegics, and give sight to the blind, uh, prosperity to the poor, and just outlandish claims. Famous among which are the well-known charlatans such as Benny Hinn, who recently claimed to have uh, repented from the charismatic Pentecostal prosperity gospel movement, but that yet remains to be seen because he's still preaching, he still admonishes all these blasphemous teachers, these wolves, and he, 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 he hasn't changed his theology really in any major way, so as people could really notice, oh, okay, this guy's not really doing what he used to do, so we got to watch out with that. And uh, another really well-known guy who's not, he's not well-known, strangely so, in America, but he is really well-known in Africa. His name is Reinhard Bonnke. He's a German He's really good friends with Benny Hinn. He actually remarried Benny Hinn to his divorced wife. I think her name is Monica. And, well, that, that is, first of all, that's sinful, because Benny Hinn divorced her for unbiblical reasons, and then he remarried the same woman, 
having, of course, had an affair with Paula White, that famous uh, magazine cover that, that showed Benny Hinn walking outside of a hotel holding hands with Paula White while he was still married, I think. And this guy, uh, Reinhard Bonnke, remarried them. Why do I mention his name? Because in my old charismatic church, uh, when I was coming out of the movement uh, in a theological sense, I saw my old pastor walking all the time with, probably for a month, with a book in his hand that was titled, I think it was God's Fire or something like that. I'll I'll check out the title and uh, provide an answer to that in the next episode. But I, I always noticed that the the name of the author had this guy's name on it, Reinhard Bonnke. So I was like, oh, who's, who's this guy? Maybe he's, maybe he's cool, he's a good theologian or, or a, a good preacher. Turns out that he wasn't. He, he just gathers up these multitudes, immense multitudes, just innumerable in Africa, promising these people wealth, uh, that their pigs won't die, as John Piper puts it, uh, cars, prosperity, health, all, all the deal, yet they never get it. And he has a record that he keeps uh, with the names that belong to people that have supposedly have been converted. So he, he keeps a list of all the quote-unquote converted people who raise a hand when he calls out, uh, well, who knows, uh, who wants to receive Christ in their hearts, raise your hand, stuff like that, like altar calls. He keeps a list with all the people that he records doing that. So he's, he's a con man, of course. He just, he's just on it for the money, or, or maybe he's just super deceived. Or as the very word of God puts it, they are deceived and being, I mean, they are deceivers and being deceived. So he's, he's a perfect, perfect example of that. So going to the words, to the actual words of Jesus, do those words in John 14, 12, and 14 truly mean that Christ's disciples would do greater signs and wonders that Christ himself did? So I already gave out the text. I'm still going to read it, but you probably know what I'm talking about already. Now, are we to honestly believe that signs and wonders greater than Christ's, for example, the raising of Lazarus, walking on water, feeding over 9,000 people, probably more than that. It was probably 12,000. Feeding those people with, with a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish, cleansing of lepers, immediate recovery of, of tetraplegics, opening the eyes of people who were born blind. Do we really think that those miracles were to be surpassed by his followers? Did Christ's reputation as the greatest sign performer in history, suddenly get trumped by his very slaves. And of course, the passage I'm talking about is, uh, I'm going to quote it right now. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. John 14, 12 through 14. What we should notice in this text is exactly the same thing that we should notice before trying to grasp any text of scripture. Historical and grammatical context. I just did an episode on that, on historical context. I have yet to do one in grammatical context, which that that one is coming out relatively soon. So first we have to ask, who is the original audience here in this, uh, in these words of Christ? Is it 21st century charismatics or any other denominational Christian, or is it someone else? And no, it's not that. It's not 21st century charismatics. We must notice that the people who heard these words were in a room with Jesus. That is the upper room. The ones who heard him were 10 in total. Judas had already departed in the previous chapter. The disciples heard this in a moment of great turmoil. Jesus was about to be betrayed. The sheep would be scattered. They, they could not follow Jesus to where he was going. And his very traitor was one of those people. And his identity was still a secret until this time. And verses 10 through 11 give us the backdrop for uh, 12 through 14. Philip had shown unbelief by telling Jesus their desire to see the Father. We could assume that they expected a, 
a huge indestructible piece if they could just see God the Father for one tiny fraction of a second. They could withstand any trial and obstacle that would, come, that would come their way. And Jesus kindly rebuked Philip by telling him that seeing Jesus is equivalent to seeing the Father. The Son is the utmost expression of the Father. There is, there is no God in heaven that is unlike Jesus. That's what the disciples were still missing in their, in their minds and in their hearts. And he further backs up his statement, Jesus does, by telling Philip and the others to believe on behalf of the works that Jesus performs. If they will not believe him by his words, they should believe him by his works. Now, given the points made above, we can extract that the main thrust of all that Jesus has said is about himself, and not about his disciples. In their moment of greatest distress, and this is really a, uh, an altar to Christ's mercy and selflessness, in the moment of the, the disciples' greatest distress, they, they knew that, that their Messiah, their Master, was going to be taken by, by the Gentiles and the Pharisees and was going to be crucified. He told them that many times it would still not penetrate their stubborn minds, just as our minds are really stubborn also as well. And it was them that needed to be comforted. Even though Jesus was about to take the wrath of God the Father on himself, his attention was always on his weak disciples. They should have been comforting him, if anything. And he's the one that comforts them. That's really, it's really amazing to think about that. And this text, uh, John 14, 12 through 14, is, uh, is all about what Jesus does, not about what we or any of the original disciples could do. So what really are the greater works? We have already established how ridiculous it would be to affirm that anyone has done greater miracles than Christ has. That would be a supreme act of arrogance and self-deceit. Just think about it. How, how ridiculous would it be to claim that someone can do greater signs, greater works than Christ has since he lived the only perfect life that, any, that anyone has lived. And he rose, he resurrected people that had been dead for four days. He resurrected himself. He incarnated basically himself because he's, so he's, he's God. I know God the Father sent him through the Holy Spirit, but he's also God. He gave up his own life. No one can do that. If anyone can, claims that they can do greater works, then, well, they should prophesy their own death. Actually, have that come to pass and then raise themselves up from the dead. Greater works cannot mean that followers of Christ can do greater miracles or greater signs or wonders that he did. That is ridiculous. And what is a lot of help here is the Greek. The English translation doesn't do it a lot of justice. The Greek uh, word for work is erga or erga if, if you want to Americanize it, which means uh, business or employment, that with which anyone is occupied. We also see it in Mark 13, 34. I'm not going to quote all these because we, we would run out of time and I don't have anything open actually to guide myself with. Oh yeah, I do. Wait. Let me just read those. Mark, what did I just say? 13, 34. Here we go. It is like a man going on a journey. This is uh, the section, no one knows that day or, or hour. It is like a man going on a journey when, when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. We also see similar uh, statements in Acts 14.26 and 1 Timothy 3.1. The work of salvation committed by God to Christ. That's also a, a meaning of the word. We see that in John uh, 17, 4, the work which you have given me to do uh, and the work to be done by the apostles and other Christian teachers, as well as by the presiding officers of the religious assemblies. We see that on Acts 13, 2, Acts 15, 38, 1 Thessalonians 5, 13, Philippians 1, 22, and Ephesians 4, 12. It can also mean the work performed in undertaking the ministry or the execution of the ministry. Uh, enterprise, undertaking any sort of work. Uh, it can also mean any product, whatever, anything accomplished by hand, art, industry, 
the mind, uh, the works of God visible in the creative world. It can be an act, a deed, a thing done. The idea of working is emphasized and opposed to that which is less than work. And we see in all these explanations that work refers to what Christ came to do, not mainly his signs and wonders. And a really, a really interesting definition here would be his perfection in the works that he accomplished uh, in regards to the law and fulfilling all the law and keeping a perfect record, a perfect life. That is also good works. Of course it is. We cannot be saved without those. So the word miracle, this part is really crucial. The word miracle in the English, it doesn't have a cognate, uh, a, a relatively close word or a connected word with the Greek. The word miracle doesn't really exist in the Greek New Testament. It, it is only found in the English translations. The Greek words for signs and wonders are actually the following. First one is teras or teros. I'm organized again. That will be sign. It's a miraculous wonder done to elicit a reaction from onlookers. An extraordinary event with its supernatural effect left on all witnessing it. It can be also portent from heaven to earth. And the other word, which is wonder or token, is the word semeon, which is a sign also and typically miraculous, given especially to confirm, corroborate, or authenticate. So Simeon emphasizes the end purpose which exalts the one from whom the sign proceeds. Remember that a sign is always meant to point to something outside of the sign itself. It is meant to point toward God, not toward the, the person fulfilling that sign or uh, getting that sign to work or uh, performing would be a better word. It is not meant to, to point to that person, but to, to the actual source from which the sign proceeds, which is God only. And accordingly, it is used dozens of times in, in the New Testament for what God uses to authenticate, first, uh, first of all, Christ himself, as you can see in John 5, when he says, if, again, if you don't believe me because of my words, believe me because of my works, for te they testify of me. Uh, and, of course, on the apostles and their close companions, as you can see in uh, Ephesians 2, Ephesians 4, uh, 2, 2 Corinthians 12, 12, Hebrews 2, 4, many places. In Acts 14, the first, I think they're the first three or four verses where Paul says uh, God was bearing witness uh, together with us um, through these signs and wonders. So. Uh, the signs are especially designed for God to authenticate those that are his true, his proper and original messengers of revelation. That is what they're for. So you can't really replicate them now because that would mean that God is um, revealing new revelation through you or whoever is claiming to do that sign and that is not a possibility since scripture is closed so we could say that shortly that a sign is meant to point something outside of itself to the original object and in the case of sign gifts the object is god and the subject is corroborated and authenticated by the object of said sign which is again god so what is jesus truly saying in john 14 12 through 14 i'm going to ask that question quite a lot in this episode is he talking about a sign, wonder, or is he talking about works of righteousness? Or is Jesus merely saying that his perfect morality and his perfect loving obedience to the Father are the works which establish him as the Messiah? Now, the answer to that is yes, but that could be a simplistic conclusion and too many threads would end up loose. If this were to be our conclusion, and it can be because it doesn't really violate the immediate text or any logical conclusion from there, uh, we would have to ignore the overarching context of what works mean throughout the whole of Scripture. Now, the biblical concept of signs and wonders are revealed as early as in Exodus 4. Moses was trying to excuse himself from returning to Egypt in order to deliver the people of Israel out of the grip of Pharaoh. And after asking God for his personal name, which is Yahweh, Moses keeps hiding in his defeated self-confidence. Moses just wants 
to trust in him and he really doesn't because he's just depressed with himself and he doesn't really trust God yet. He just keeps excusing himself all the time. And then God introduces to to Moses what would become the pattern for authenticating the true spokesman of God, and that is sign gifts. And I'm going to read now Exodus 4, verses 1 through 6 from the ESV. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put your hand and catch it by the tail. Sorry, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. What is the most crucial part in that section of Exodus 4? Let me tell you guys, that they may believe. That is it. And as we have said earlier, signs point to an external object, to a source of power. They work as a presentation card for anyone who claims to speak for God. And nearly 600 years after Moses, Elijah is introduced. And Elijah bears the mantle of Moses. As Elijah rebukes the people of Israel, represented by its wicked, disgusting kings, Ahab and Jezebel, the water ceases to fall. That's the first curse. The, actually, Elijah himself brings it because of how wicked um, Ahab and Jezebel were. Three years without rain in Israel. Rain just stops and the people beg for water. He proclaims the word of the Lord on Mount Carmel against the idolaters, the, the priests of Baal. And he meets with, uh, with God with Yahweh on Mount Horeb, exhausted and afraid of the people. That is just one of the greatest turning points of of 1 Kings, if not probably of the whole Old Testament. This fearless prophet who was basically alone, he just stood before this wicked king who, who really was a puppet of Jezebel. And he just wrecks them with, with his preaching and cursing. And then rain stops, and, and uh, then he has a massive victory on Mount, uh, on Mount Carmel with the, was it 300 prophets? I think it was 400. I'm sorry if I'm wrong on that. It's nearly 1 a.m. here, but I don't have an excuse, honestly. Then he does that, defeats them all by himself, of course, not himself with God. Uh, even one with God is still a majority. John Knox said that. And then he, he just goes terrified and hides on Mount Horeb. He was terrified of Jezebel and of, of the rest of the people. And that is a striking similarity also with Moses. He was, Moses was afraid before and after he was afraid a couple of times also. But the greatest um, similarity between Elijah and Moses is Elijah's ability to work signs. We haven't had signs in the Old Testament for, I don't know how many hundreds of years. I think the, the latest person uh, the last person from Elijah backwards is Samson, if we could call him a miracle worker because he just had superhuman strength. So I, I don't know if, if we can even do that. So if we trace it all the way back to Moses, Moses lived in, in around 1600, 1500 BC, uh, in, in the centuries, I mean, and then Elijah comes at around 800, if I'm not wrong, right? Yeah, Elijah's from 9th century BC. So you have a good six to five hundred years without a sign. And before Moses, who was the first person? You don't, you don't really have anyone. So it's Moses and then Elijah. You have six hundred years of um, miraculous silence, if we can call it that. The first sign produced by Elijah was that of stopping rainfall as a judgment on Israel. That, and you can find that in 1 Kings 17.1. Then he raised a dead child from, um, what was this place called? Sarephath. Sarephath, sorry. Yeah, Sarephath. You can find that in 1 Kings 17.8-24. And the child's mother said really something incredible. And very much like what God uh, told to Moses when he, when he 
picked up his staff, threw it to the ground, and picked it up again. Uh, check this out in 1 Kings 17.24. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is, is truth. 1 Kings 17.24. We should really be amazed that this pagan woman from Zarephath, a city in Sidon, she had a better theology of sign gifts than most evangelicals have today. After Elijah rescued the little boy by the power of God uh, and raised him back to life, the woman recognized him as a man through whom an extraordinary God displayed his awesome power. And the next time we witness a similar account is with Elijah's successor, Elisha. God was pleased to concede a double portion of Elijah's spirit, which is another horrifically badly used um, terminology by the charismatic movement, though. That, that God gives you double of X and Y person's spirit so you can work more signs and wonders. That has nothing to do with what Elijah and Elisha were talking about. Now, soon after Elijah was taken up to heaven by flaming horses, and that's an interesting bit, which we're going to touch on on another surprise episode. And I'll probably be, I don't know if I'll have a, of a guest for that or I'll be invited to a great podcast to talk about that. I'll just leave it as a surprise and as a cliffhanger. Uh, when Elijah was taken to heaven, he grabbed a hold, uh, Elisha grabbed a hold of Elijah's mantle, which is a garment that he used to part the waters of the Jordan River. And he himself used it. Elisha used it. He parted the waters immediately with um, Elijah's mantle. And that, that right away invests him with the same authority that Elijah had. That is why it was a double portion of Elijah's spirit. Elijah was horrified at the first, in the first, um, the first bit of his ministry against uh, Ahab and Jezebel. That is unlike Elisha. Elijah just went and performed a miracle immediately. He parted the waters of the Jordan. And then he called upon the God of, of, of Elijah to do so, which corroborated him, authenticated him as a true messenger of, of, of God. And it is crucial to note that godly men of Israel immediately recognized Elisha as having the same power, the same endowment as Elijah did. And we see that in 2 Kings 2.15. And I read... Um, now when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him opposite them, they said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. Now, guys, since we already know that Jesus used the same method to authenticate his signs and wonders, and his, his, his very same authority, I'm, I'm just going to read you John 5, because I, I just love that text. It's so clear on this. John knew this perfectly well. He, he, of course, John, if you think about it, John was really very well acquainted with the Old Testament. That's why he could write the book of, of Revelations and use all that symbology. He was extremely um, mesmerized, probably. He, 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 knew, he, he, he probably knew... Um, Isaiah, Daniel, and Ezekiel by heart. How do you know he could just use all those, that symbology that you find in Revelation and that is obviously extracted from uh, Isaiah, Daniel, and, and Ezekiel? This was full of that. He didn't just come up with it. He, he knew what he was talking about because he was so drenched in the Old Testament. So the text from John 5 is John 5, 39. No, it's not 39, I'm sorry. I think it's 36 or 34. Uh, here it is. It's John 5, 36. I'm sorry for that. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Isn't that great? That is, that is so clear. And then he feeds the 5,000, so the context m makes it even more clear. Can't get that wrong. Can't possibly get it wrong. So what we have next here 
Now we have established that the few times the Old Testament mentions the use of gifts and their respective nature, it is to verify a newly called prophet. And contrary to popular thought nowadays, sign gifts are a rare occurrence in the Old Testament. Miracles are not found in every page, which is a really bad straw man from pretty much every single atheist that is a consistent naturalist, which they can't really be. But a lot of people think that the Bible is just filled with miracles, and it's really not. They are rare and scarce in Scripture. In fact, you can only count like 120 years worth of miracle working in the entire 1,100 year span between Moses and the last Old Testament prophet, who's Malachi. So what are the greater works, I ask again. And given the whole biblical concept and the use of Jesus' own words in the text surrounding John 14, 12-14, we can't simply conclude that the works are works of righteousness, as I said a while ago. They sure encompass that, but it's a lot broader. Jesus is indeed referring to signs and wonders. That's just obvious. We have to conclude that. And the Father's witness about Christ included the sign gifts. You can see that in Matthew 11, 1 through 6, Luke 7, 18 through 23. And let's just look at the text on Matthew real quick. Um, Matthew 11, 1 through 6. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent words, word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. That is a gorgeous piece of text. That is, of course, rooted on uh, Isaiah 61. And the beautiful part about that is that John, John was desperate back then. He was imprisoned in the fortress of Machaerus, built by Herod. That place had probably three, a, a three by three square in which the person would just stand there and could do nothing. So John had had this fantastic ministry that resembled Elijah because he spoke against the religious elite from that era. But he had, then he ended up in prison. Being the forerunner of the Messiah got him in prison. It didn't get him the political advantage that every Jew was thinking that the Messiah would bring. And then John, John sends his disciples to Jesus and, and asks him, um, Are you the one who is to come or shall we wait for another? And then Jesus tells him all that. The, the deaf hear, the blind see, the dead are raised, the poor have the good news preached to them. That's beautiful. That's, that's a, a testimony to John that Jesus is truly who he claims to be. And what, what is he using to verify that? The sign gifts that he has been given the, the privilege by God the Father to use to authenticate himself. Now, uh, we got to turn to, because I'm running out of time here. I don't want to keep you guys for too long. We're going to run to a, a tiny, not that tiny actually, to an exegesis. This is all in-house work from our podcast. None of this is taken from someone else, by the way. Uh, so, where do I start here? As is common for charismatics, I, I just hate going after them so much, but they really do this. And, and not only them, but a lot of Christian denominations do that. They just isolate verses from their actual context, uh, context and then use them as proof text to verify their positions. Be it, I also love my Presbyterian brothers, but I believe they are proof texts. And when they use uh, Act 16 to claim that uh, household baptism includes babies, that, has, that is an argument from Silas, and it doesn't really work. Uh, but Charismatics also do that, and a lot more than Presbyterians. Presbyterians actually have fantastically better theology than Charismatics do. Probably a lot of my favorite theologians are all Presbyterians. My favorite current theologian is Sinclair Ferguson, who's a Presbyterian, so... I don't have anything against them. But I, I disagree on the infant baptism bit. Now, this verse suffers the same treatment by charismatics. They isolate it, and they make a, an elaborate approach at times to set the, the verse 
above its context and just isolate it and make it stand out as if that were the sole thing that the, the section of the text is saying. Now I'm going to try an attempt to explain and walk you, walk you through the text and bring out the little details. Uh, we're going to be um, going through John 14, 10 through 14 now. So it's not just 12 through 14. We're going to grab a little bit more of the preceding context. Now, in, in the context, Peter had just been warned by Christ of his denial. The apostles were terrified of who was the one who would deny and give Jesus over. It was one of themselves. So they, they were probably terrified. They, they knew they had witnessed Jesus um, foretelling the future. And he had just told them that it would be one of them who would give him up, who would treason him. Now Christ, um, Jesus comforts them and urges them to believe, to trust, and to rely upon himself, upon Christ. He was departing soon, and they could not go with him. They were just surrounded by fear and turmoil. Their hearts were uneasy. They were not paying attention to the words of Christ. And having told them before that they would follow afterward, after he would ascend, and they would die, of course, Jesus gives them peace with his words, I will come again and take you to myself. It should be striking to note that the disciples didn't know where Christ was going, nor the way to get there. They were in a frenzy. They were desperate. Their minds were being flooded with questions, fear, hopelessness. Just imagine being with Jesus three years, consecutive years, getting to know him personally and deeply, spending complete days with him, hearing of his teaching, witnessing his miracles, and then just having him say, I'm going to leave and you can't come. That, that would throw me into a tantrum. And the, the disciples weren't really far from that. It's not really hard to put ourselves in, in their shoes. And then Christ, God incarnate, was leaving them, not only in this world, but in the midst of wolves and enemies. The disciples feared their, their own death after the, the, the crucifixion and the days between uh, the death and the resurrection. They would have been put to death had Christ not resurrected. But he would not leave them alone, nor leave them without a witness to bear him witness in the world. And the witness was to be an empowerment for their testimony to Christ. And the disciples in John 14, voiced by Philip, respond with unbelief. And this is clear because of their seemingly utter reliance on their senses and feelings. They were pleading with Christ, show us, show us the Father. Their faith was relying upon their own, their own senses, their eyesight, their touch, their feeling, their... You get me. They're, they were not relying upon God's promises in Jesus. They needed to see the Father in order to trust and have a grasp on Him for what was coming upon them, so they could survive what was coming upon them. Then Jesus kindly rebukes Philip for his disbelief in what he has seen and heard for the past three years. Then Jesus makes an astonishing claim of deity. Whoever has seen Him, whoever has laid eyes, and not only eyes, physical eyes, but eyes of faith upon him, has seen the Father. As I said before, there's no God in heaven who is unlike Jesus. It's really, it's really hard for us sometimes, for some of us at least, to not picture God the Father as somehow angry or displeased with our lives as Christians or what we do. But just remember that God the Father was the one who sent Jesus. That's how much he loves us. That's how much he cares. And he is not unlike Jesus. They are the same essence, the same usia. They are not unlike each other. So after rebuking Philip for his disbelief, and after uh, Jesus makes his claim of deity, he is the perfect reflection and image of God the Father. That's what he's saying there. He is not unlike the Father in any way, sense, or form or shape, if you want to put it that way, but God the, Father, God the Father has no shape. They share an equal essence, and all the attributes of the one belong to the other. The Son reveals the Father by the Holy Spirit, who opens our eyes at the command of the Father to look at the Son, behold the Son, in His divine majesty, and believe in Him. 
Now we have to touch a bit on the unity of the Trinity here. It is such that one member does not do anything apart from the other two. And there's a great Latin phrase. Now my first language is Spanish, so I'll flaunt my Spanish here a bit. Uh, the Latin phrase, and by the way, Spanish is one of the Romantic languages, so it is derived from Latin, so the pronunciation is basically identical. The phrase is opera trinitatis ad extra sunt indivisa, and that means in Latin, the external works of the Trinity are indivisible. Whatever the Triune God decrees within the, the internal relationship of the Trinity, that very thing he works outwardly, and that with the same unity. God the Father was present in creation, that's Genesis 1.1. God the Son was present in creation, John 1.1-3. And God the Holy Spirit was also present in creation, and that is Genesis 1.2. Everything that God does, he does in full activity, with all three members working equally. No member of the Godhead is inactive while the other two are active. Or one member is active and the other two are inactive. That's not a reality in the Trinity. They are always working together. As the Son is eternally begotten by the Father, everything he does, including his very words, come from the Father. The Father worked in the Son while the Son was submitted and willingly submitted by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Father's works were manifest in the Son by the Spirit. So moving on from that bit on the Trinity, uh, the apostles were called to believe that the Father is in the Son and that the Son is in the Father. They indwell each other. Same with the Holy Spirit. The apostles were called, and every, every disciple and every Christian are called to believe in their unity, both essential and economical. Economical means how God relates to his creation, and essential is, is how he relates to um, the other, how the members of the Trinity relate to each other. And they were urged, the apostles here in this scene in John 14, they were being urged by Christ to believe an account of the works he did. The might of the signs and wonders of Christ were unparalleled in the Old Testament, and they are unparalleled in the New and throughout history, throughout modern history. That's why this claim is so ridiculous, to claim that people could do greater works. That's folly. Unparalleled in the, in the Old Testament. They worked as a powerful testimony to the veracity of Christ's identity as God's final word to man. And not only were his miraculous powers part of his, of his authenticity as God's son, who is the final spokesman, Jesus is the, the zenith, the epitome of the prophet, of the role of the prophet. He's the epitome of the role of the king and of the priest. He is both prophet, priest, and king. But also... Not, not only his miraculous powers were part of his authenticity, but also were his works of righteousness. Jesus' perfect, undefiled life was a massive testimony to the veracity of, he, of who he truly is. They had nothing to blame him for, only with made-up lies by the, his accusers. So the greater works, they encompass both signs and works of righteousness. Although a very important distinction must be made, they are not greater in potency or magnitude in John 14, um, 12 through 14 in our text. They are more potent, they are greater in outreach and spread and quantity. None of the apostles walked on water, none of the apostles calmed a raging storm with a word, with a single word. In English, it's three peace be still. I don't know how many are there in the Greek. Probably Nick knows. He could help here. But none of the apostles did that. That's, that's the, the, the point here. And none of the disciples raised a dead person who had been lying in the grave for four days. They did raise dead people, but none had been already putrefied. And no other follower of Christ has ever fed over 10,000 people with a few loaves and fish. If anyone has, just please get me some proof. And what is the difference then? So while Christ had a few hundred disciples throughout his ministry, the disciples witnessed uh, around 3,000 converts 
to Christ in one single day. That is found in Acts 2. Um, and while Jesus spoke in Aramaic, Hebrew, and Greek, that's what we know um, now, of course, because he Aramaic was his, his normal day-to-day language. Hebrew also, of course, he was fluent in Hebrew because Aramaic is simply a dialect of Hebrew. And Greek was the sort of like the universal language back then. Everyone spoke Greek. Everyone at least that was a bit educated. And we know that uh, the disciples, of course, spoke Greek because they wrote the New Testament in Greek. So Jesus obviously also spoke in Greek. And maybe some Latin, if not a lot. So the disciples were given the gift of speaking in other languages to read to to reach people from all nations. And Jesus primarily came to proclaim his good news to the house of Israel. The disciples, on the other hand, were sent to the whole world. Jesus never wrote scripture in his humanity. He is, of course, the author in his divinity. But the apostles were inspired to write down 27 inspired God-giving books. And another point that is important is when Christ was physically present on earth, only he had the fullness of the Spirit. When, when he promised the Spirit to his disciples in John 16, uh, Jesus says, He has been with you. Talking about himself, the Spirit indwells him in such a full and unique sense that the Spirit was also with the disciples in, that, in, in all those three years. And then he said, and he will be in you. He was not, he would not be the only one to be indwelt by the Spirit, but anyone who is joined to him in this covenant relationship is also indwelt with the same Spirit. And when he ascended on high, that is Ephesians 4.8, he led a host captives and gave gifts to men. That primary gift is the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit himself. And his disciples spread the power of Christ uh, through the nations, albeit with the same purpose as that of Christ. So whatever his apostles asked or or were led to do, God did. But he did with a specific goal in mind. And that is that the Father may be glorified in the Son. That's John 14, 13, the following verse uh, from John 14, 12, of course. I don't know why I said that. And they never, the apostles never performed signs just for the sake of healing someone or to bring attention to themselves or grow a massive church filled with people, um, people who are hungry and obsessed to witness a miraculous experience. And that's what we have today in the charismatic Pentecostal movement. And that is what is concerning about it. People are just, most of them just go to witness something, to have their emotions stirred up and have some experience to latch onto, to have some sort of grounding for their faith. And that is, it is just sad to witness people that need something to see in order to believe. That is not true faith. And Jesus actually rebuked the Pharisees and said, um, it is a twisted generation, crooked, wicked generation, the one that seeks after a sign. And that is what we have today in, in, in Christianity mainly in, in American Christianity, but also in Africa, as I talked about this guy, this friend of Benny Hinn, uh, here in South America, I'm still living in Chile, by the way, I'm moving to the States really soon. If God wills, please pray for that. But we have that here everywhere, Pentecostal churches all over the place. And people are just hungry, not really for, for the word, although many of them are, but they're hungry for experiences, for a miraculous something, for for some emotion spiking event. And, um, well, moving on from that, after the canon of the Bible had been finished and revelation ceased with the last apostle, the signs waned. They, they went away. Why? Because they were no longer needed. God no longer had the purpose of bearing witness for his spokesman because he had no more spokesmen other than those who rely on the already revealed scriptures to make that message known and clear. So, our conclusion is that the greater works are not to be interpreted as an ability to do mightier signs and wonders than the, than the Messiah himself did. That is in itself an impossible and just unachievable feat. 
but the works are far greater in extent. And what do I mean by that? We have Christian colleges, universities, seminaries, missionary centers, hospitals, prison ministries, military ministries. Those are the greater works, the spread of Christ's divine message and its blessings. The greater one being the preaching of the gospel itself, the power of God unto salvation, and the furthering of the message of Christ's incarnation, perfect life, atoning death, and resurrection. That message is far greater than, than any sign. That is the sign. And there is really no great, greater sign than God bringing life and holiness from a place that only knew death and sin. So that is it for today's episode, guys. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed. And remember our giveaway on the Undying Light page. Undying Light page. I'm sorry for that. Um, please also consider becoming a Patreon so that we can bring you better content with better quality and really cool features and giveaways. Also, um, I'd please ask you again, pray for me and pray for my family to make our move to the States soon and safe because our, our country is in socialistic, I dare even to say communistic riots. Just, it's a mess. It's a real mess. And it went down really quick. So we want to make the move quickly. Thank you guys and God bless you. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.